When I was in Southern California, I had the privilege of having Cinderella in my youth group. Now, not that one, but the, this one. There was a young lady who worked at Disneyland. We were close enough to Anaheim where we could actually take the kids after school to Disneyland, which was super cool. And I don't know if you've had a chance to go to Disneyland before, but they really do things with excellence at Disneyland. And one of the things that I loved when I interacted with Cinderella was to find out some of the stories of what it was like to work there. And she tells the story of the fact that they're all trained as cast members that if they ever see a piece of trash, that it's their responsibility to pick it up. So can you picture Cinderella picking up a gum wrapper on the floor? Well, that was a part of the deal. She said she watched one of the executives there do that as they were walking across the the um, campus of Disneyland. She also tells stories of the fact that the trash cans are painted in such a way to match the foliage that's around them, or the, if you look at the, the detail that's there, the commitment to doing things with excellence. And many would say it goes back to Walt Disney, and she described a plaque that had a special quote that was kind of behind the scenes. And the quote goes back to a day when Walt Disney had, had begun the first animatronic deal that they had built was the Tiki Room. Now, if you've never been there before, it's one of those stories that Disneyland or songs that Disneyland is famous for, the repetitive songs that you can't get out of your mind, that the Tiki Room, I won't sing it for you, but it'll stick with you. But, but in the Tiki Room, the story goes that, that Walt Disney was approached by one of the robotic engineers, and, and he's watching this. The bird can flap its wings. It's lifelike. It can sing. It's amazing. And he's so excited to show Walt Disney. And, and Walt's comment after looking at it, he says, but wait, it doesn't breathe. <laughs> The, the way he describes it, he's saying that this, this is a statement that Walt, a quote that's famous to him is that people can feel excellence. It's interesting, isn't it? That you can feel excellence. That statement in and of itself is interesting to me because it describes the idea that, that the way that we approach something or the quality that we approach something can be perceived by other people in such a way that it moves them. Now, the God of all creation understands excellence, doesn't he? I've had the privilege of being at the bottom of the Grand Canyon when the sunrise comes up and to see the, the colors of the, this is an Amish country, and you just think of sunrises and sunsets, and you think of the fact, have you ever been on a plane and seen a sunrise, and you just think that this is all happening whether anybody notices it or not, right? You know, in Genesis, when the Lord talks about his creation, that five different times he says, he looked back at his creation, and it was good. The last phrase that he says, after you and I were created, is he says that it was very good. It's fascinating to see. God understands excellence, doesn't he? Can you picture a moment as you've, you've observed God's creation where you've stood back and you've just said that you are in awe of his creation? So there's this phrase in the book of Colossians as we continue our study uh, I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. It's been challenging. It's been encouraging. Last week, we looked at family roles, and this is going to carry into what we look at today, where there's, there's going to be this statement that the Apostle Paul says, and it's a statement about excellence. It's a statement about our commitment to doing things well. And I want you to hear these words. We're going to pick up in verse 23, and we'll go back to verse 22. But I want you to hear this in verse 23. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for man. 
whatever you do. And, and later on, he's going to give us the quality of work, how we work, how, why we ought to do this work. But the key with this, catch this with me, is that God is at the epicenter of this. And there's a component of this statement where he's saying, you and I ought to be people who do everything to the best of our ability because of the fact that it's ultimately us doing it for the Lord. Now, that doesn't always work out that well in the church. And I, and I love this story. The one humorist puts it this way. He says that in the minivan on the way home from church, that a family was together and, and they started complaining. The, the dad said the pastor preached a little too long. Now, this wasn't at Hope Church, all right? Never happened here before. Um, but the, the dad says that the pastor preached a little long. And then the mom says that during the song, she, she knew music and it looked like the pianist was a little bit off. And then the, the grandma says that she sat in a section where she couldn't really hear. So somebody was messing up with the sound booth. And, and the, the son says, somebody sat right in front of me. So I couldn't see the screens. And, and, but then finally the son um, says, you know, all that complaining, I get it, but uh, it was a, you got to admit that it was a pretty good show for the five cents dad put in the offering plate, right? <laughs> it, it's a terrible joke, but you, you understand that there's something inherently wrong when it comes to our understanding of this being somehow transactional, that this is a show that we attend and we, what we put in the offering plate is somehow to validate to understand what God is saying to us about his church and to understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching us, he's saying to us in every area, tithes, treasure, talents, when it comes to how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, how we invest the things that God's blessed us with, it's not about us putting a value measurement and say, is it worth it? But instead, it actually is us saying that, God, you deserve my best, right? So when he says this phrase, to do everything as unto the Lord, what he's saying to us is we ought to be people who do everything to the best of our ability. And the context that he's going to put this in is in every area of our lives, as husbands and wives, as co-workers, as people who are serving one another, serving the Lord, that, that this is going to be reflected in every decision that we make, that we ought to be people who, while we have bosses and while we are bosses, while we have teachers and while we are taught, that we stand back and we find ourselves saying, we do everything heartily. That's with our whole heart as unto the Lord. It's a tough challenge. And, and there's a context that's here that's complicated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We are continuing on in this series through the book of Colossians as Paul writes this letter to a church that he'd never been to. But he's warning them that there's going to be challenges coming for their faith. And he's saying to them, this is how you ought to live your life. We're going to pick up in verse 22 of Colossians chapter 3 and go through chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord, with reverence to the Lord, where we read before, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from your Lord you will receive the inheritance and an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And then he goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. 
This is complicated. There's a part when you read this, the starting part, where you say, wait a second, Paul, whose side are you on? He's talking about bond servants and he's talking about slavery. And in fact, some have abused verses like this to support slavery. And it's so important to understand the context that this was written in. First of all, half of the audience that would have received this would have been slaves. They say that up to 60 million individuals in the Roman world were, in the Roman empire were slaves. That's half the population of that day. And, and we, what we recognize is that God's word is crystal clear about the evils of human trafficking, how wrong it is. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 10, Revelation 18, 11 through 13. And what we believe is the applied truth of God's word is ultimately going to take people who are at one time slave owners that said words like, that, that recognized that they were being saved by a God who saved a wretch like them, that set them free, that they, and as they understood the truth of God's word, they realized the evils of slavery. And they step back and move from what we learned from the book of Philemon, that we see a man who was considered a slave now understood as a brother, right? That the, the gospels ultimately, when it's applied, is gonna radically impact the world's understanding of equality and unity. And we've talked about it here as a church, that we're stronger together in the complexity of God's, God's family than we are when we look alike, but we gather together because of the fact that we're unified under the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our king, right? So here we see this, this description of a slavery that ultimately what he's saying to people who are in this situation is that you ought to, in the midst of your circumstances, have a perspective that says you do everything under authority to the best of your ability as if you were doing this to God. I love the, the, this quote from Charles Octavius Booth. His memoirs are amazing. He was a slave that had been freed and he became a pastor and a theologian. You know what's amazingly sad about American history is that, that, that slave owners understood how clear God's word was when it comes to slavery and how evil it was. So when they gave Bibles to their slaves, they cut out entire sections of God's word because they recognize that God's word shows us what the value is of a human being. But here, Charles Octavius Booth says these words, and I love them. He says, those who are raised from spiritual death and made partakers of spiritual life should not spend any moments of that new life in asking useless questions, but rather busy themselves with devout thanks for the gift and in earnest efforts to make the most of their life for the glory of the gracious giver. That statement is really what we're talking about when we're talking about responsive excellence to the king. That we're saying that God deserves our best regardless if we're the boss or if we're the, the leader that's under the authority of someone else. Regardless of if we're the teacher or we're the taught. Regardless of if we're in charge or if we're under the charge of others. Now, I, I look at this first point and it's important to hear this. God's word in no way does, does it support slavery or the worship of work? But it teaches that through our work, you and I can worship the Lord. Let me rephrase, that, restate that statement. God's word does not support slavery or the worship of work, but it teaches that through our work, we can worship the Lord. Now, I confess that there's, there's a component of this statement when we look at wor work in general in America today, and we can say that it's possible for some people to worship work. 
to, to place it in a place in our lives that it doesn't deserve. But, to, but the end of this statement and what the Apostle Paul is going to keep telling us to recalibrate ourselves towards is to say, ultimately, we want our work to worship the Lord, right? That we want to give him our best. And, and it leads us to the second point this morning and that this is a message to all people who are under authority Newsflash, that's all of us, right? That we're all under authority. That this message is for all who are under authority, which is truly all of us. And, and what we see in God's word, if we look back in Colossians chapter 3, 22 through 25, is we're going to see how we work, why we work, and the quality of our work. Let me read through this again. And I want you to see this context. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So we see how we're supposed to work. We're, we're called in God's word to be people who relinquish control. It says that we ought to obey our earthly masters. We don't pick and choose what we want to do, but it says in everything. That, that's the scope of how we work. Or, how we work. And then we're also called to do things heartily. We use that phrase with our whole hearts as unto the Lord or as for the Lord. So the way that we do that is in, in our time, the way we invest our treasures and the way we invest our talents. And I'm guessing for those of you who have an office or you've been to work or you have employees or coworkers, you've seen this in action when somebody really does this well. It's fun that my brother Chad's with me. One of our family friends are our friends growing up, their mother grew up in a really tough home that the father was an alcoholic and, and at times could not provide for the needs of the family. And their mom, her name is Chrisula Lacey, she's still alive, but she, she worked at the local Bob Evans. And Chrisula was one of those, those individuals that does everything as unto the Lord. And I'll tell you that I had been to that Bob Evans when Chrisula wasn't there, when she was off. And I had been to that Bob Evans when she was there. And she was one of those people that just radiates joy, right? That she does everything, whether it's the work of a waitress at a Bob Evans or whether it's how she interacted with her, her coworkers, but she radiates joy. And it doesn't matter that she's not the boss, but what matters is that she's a person who's chosen to commit herself to doing everything heartily as unto the Lord. The, um, Kent Hughes tells this, this story. That that's not always the case for people who claim to be Christians in the workplace, right? And, and unfortunately, um, Kent Hughes tells this story. He said, I once had an employer tell me that he had become skeptical about a Christian, em Christian employees in general because of his experience with two theological students who seemed to always be standing around talking about God. So during their work hours, but what really did it for him was when the boss observed one of them going into the bathroom for 20 minutes. When the employee emerged, he said to his fellow student, I just had the most wonderful time. I read three chapters of the book of John in the John. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> You know, sometimes I've heard people who have claimed to be persecuted in their workplaces, and in reality, what was happening is that they were just being lazy in their workplaces, that they were claiming to be persecuted in their job because of their faith, but in reality, they weren't doing everything as unto the Lord. And so for, for you and I, when we look at the extent of how we are supposed to work, there's a component of this that we're supposed to just do it all as unto the Lord. We don't pick and choose what we want to do. 
The, the second subpoint under the second point is why we work. And you and I are called to work the way that the text puts it. It puts it in a way that it says to do it for the Lord and not for man, to please God and not man. There's a component of this that, that Chad will test to, testify to this, that we used to work for our dad growing up and we'd flip houses. And I loved working for my dad, but part of the deal would be that we'd go to a home and we'd work on it for like 10 hours. And my father had the uncanny ability. It didn't matter if I had worked 10 hours straight, but the moment that I sat down to take a break, my dad would show up, right? So the, the moment that I sat down, I could have worked you know, constantly, but it's like he had the sixth sense or the drone that was hanging out just to watch to wait when I sat down. But, but you know what? The, the, the cool part about it was over time, it stopped bothering me if that was the case when he showed up because I realized that the work that I had been doing for hours and diligent, you know, focused and on, like it was all there. It was all to be seen. The work was able to be looked at. And so whether he caught me while I was sitting down on the job for a few minutes or not didn't really matter because of the fact that I wasn't doing it to be seen. I was doing it to do it for the, at the best of my ability to please, to please my dad as my boss, but also to be faithful to the job. It says this in the text. It says that we ought to be people who do it um, in, verse, in verse 22. It says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service. We know what that looks like, just to be seen, but are not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, with integrity, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from your Lord, you will receive your inheritance as your reward. So the why we work is to not please, please man, but to please God. It's out of respect for him. This, this phrase, fearing God, is something that's grossly misunderstood. I, I love hearing Allie talk about her father, the way she was raised in her home. And the way she describes it is that she had such a level of respect for him in the home that she never wanted to do anything that went against his rules or um, the restrictions of the house just because she deeply respected him. And you could confuse that word with, with an, uh, it being something negative, that it was fear in a negative sense, but instead it was just reverence, just appropriate respect. I want to just get this right for my father. It says in the text that God rewards our faithfulness to our earthly bosses as faithfulness to him. Have you ever thought about the fact that, that you can worship at work? Now, I'm not necessarily talking about putting on like a Hillsong song in the background and you're jamming in your desk, but I'm saying that just like you would assume that a pastor does that in the church context, that we, we worship here, but that you as a Christ follower, as a student in your context of your schools, that you have the ability to worship there because what the Lord is saying to you is when you do it wholeheartedly, it's as if you're doing it to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. This ought to impact our quality of work. I believe God deserves our best, and I believe those who we're serving deserve our best. Two of my favorite examples of this. One is at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24 and 25. So we know about King David. He, the story as it goes there, that King David wrote these things early on in his in his kingship, where he said, some put their trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we've put our trust in the Lord our God. And then later on in his ministry as a leader, he ended up numbering the people um, in Israel, and ultimately it was something that God had commanded him not to do, and it led to tremendous judgment and pain. After that, after he had repented of that, the, the God said to him, I want you to build a threshing floor 
And I, I'm sorry, I want you to build an altar on the threshing floor of Ruin of the Jebusite, a very specific geographical location. And so David goes there, and we see this in the, in the end of 2 Samuel, that as David walks to that place, Aruna comes out and he recognizes his king. And he's in awe of the king. And he says, whatever you need, David, I'll give it to you. you can, I'll give you the stuff to build the altar and I'll make this possible for you. But, but David's words are so profound to me because he ends up saying, I refuse, and I'm paraphrasing this, but he says, I refuse to give to my God that which costs me nothing. In other words, what he's saying is that, that I want to have skin in the game. I want to do this to the best of my ability, and I want to honor God. You know what's amazing about that particular land where that happened is that we believe that that land now to this day is some of the most valuable land in, in the entire world because it's where the Temple Mount is in Israel. It's where God's temple was built, and with the Dome of the Rock sits right in that place. But the point behind this is to say, David just said, I'm going to make this precious to me. Another tremendous example in scripture of a person who worshiped the Lord lavishly in this way is the story of, of Mary. When she was anointing the Lord Jesus Christ, recorded in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, that, that the way the story goes is that, that Mary sees Jesus and she brings with her this alabaster jar that has has a liter full of the most expensive perfume in the day. That, that this would be the, the kind of thing that was, was so precious that you just spritz just a little bit of it. It was cherished. It was used to anoint kings. And she comes in with a jar full of this and she anoints the Lord on his head and then she washes his feet with it. And it's this lavish act that that individuals outside of it were told in multiple contexts that they didn't understand it. They were frustrated by it. In fact, Judas, you guys remember that guy? That, that Judas ends up saying, why in the world wouldn't you sell that and give it to the poor? And, and we're also told in the text that he had his hand in the offering plate, that he was stealing from the Lord at that time. So he's saying something that's selfish and misunderstood. And he's saying, why would you do this? And ultimately, Mary's response and the one that the Lord Jesus responds to is he says this really interesting phrase. He says that what she's done is a good thing, and she has brought me great honor. Those two words in, in um, Greek are profound. They, they connect together in such a way that they say that what she did was something that got, brought God great honor. It was worthy of him. It was something lavish. And it's, it's important. I'm sure for some of you, as you hear this, as we talk about excellence as a commitment, we often think about that meaning that we need to spend more but uh, we need to pay more money to, to live out in excellence. But one of the things I loved about living in the Bahamas is that we were in context where people were extremely creative, that they were great stewards of the resources that they'd have had, and they had very little resources, but they maintained and, and chose to be creative with the resources that God had given. And often they were willing to do things that, that just took a little more effort, but ultimately it was done with excellence. So Having resources is not a necessity in order to do things with excellence. And I think that Mary and King David give us these examples of individuals that were, were all in in their approach to giving God glory and honor. And the results of this are pretty straightforward. We're told in the text that we have the promise of an inheritance as our reward. In verse 24, knowing that from the Lord, so remember, we're doing this work to people or in front of people, or to serve others. But he says, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance 
as your, your inheritance, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Two words that do not show up together in the same way in the New Testament anywhere else but here. Lord Christ, put together in such a way to remind us exactly who he is, that he's worthy of the honor that we give him as our savior. For the wrongdoer, it says, will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Getting this right ensures your and my future inheritance. Getting this wrong um, is something that opens us up to the judgment of the Lord. We're told in Revelation 20 verse 11 that the great white throne judgment awaits those who are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But getting this right, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 talks about the judgment seat of Christ, a time where we have talked about this as a church family, that we, we get to graduate, we get to celebrate what it means to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. It's important for us to remember that the Lord is saying to us that he's watching how we invest our time. He's watching how we invest and steward our, our, our talents and our treasures. And he's glorified when we choose to honor him with them perfectly, when we choose to sit at his feet and to serve him. You know, uh, if, I'm, if I'm frank, uh, there's times when I stand back and I say, I just didn't put my whole heart into it, or I did it halfway. And I, I love the story. You guys have heard of Roger and Hammerstein's plays, that there's a bunch of them that are out there. But Hammerstein tells a story of the fact that he had gone to one of his plays that he'd written the songs for. And afterwards, he realized that he'd kind of phoned it in, that he called it a throwaway lyric in one of his songs. And, and he reflected on it after the fact that he'd just kind of written this lyric in a way that, that really didn't live up to his standards. And, and he had seen around that time period a picture of the Statue of Liberty. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture like this before, but it's amazing that, that you see the detail of, of the, the workmanship of the Statue of Liberty. And um, he ultimately says this, this statement, and I think it's profound. He says, it was a picture taken from a helicopter and it showed the top of the Statue of Liberty's head. That's what's above the crown. And I was amazed at the detail there. The sculptor had done a painstaking job with the lady's coiffure. And yet he must have been pretty sure that the only size that would, uh, the only eyes that would ever see this detail would be the uncritical eyes of the seagulls. Remember when this was built that there were not drones, there were no helicopters at the time, that in, in 1886, that that was a time period where, where there would be others that would not, no one would get to see this. He said he could not have dreamt that any man would ever fly over this head or take a picture of it. He was artist enough, however, to finish off this part of the statue with as much care as he had devoted to her face and her arms and the torch and everything that people can see as they sail up the bay. I want to remind you, church family, that, that God notices the details, right? And that he's asking us to be a people who do everything as unto the Lord, even when there may be others that aren't able to notice the investment that we've chosen to make. The last verse that we're going to look at this morning is in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. And remember, punctuation in the Bible is um, sometimes very unhelpful. There was not punctuation. There were not those chapter numbers at the beginning of the headings of the original scripture. And here, I think that this verse ties very much so into the previous chapter. He says this, Masters, Treat your bondservants justly 
and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is a message to those of us who have the privilege of overseeing others. And the guiding reality of this truth is that the master employer is both, um, is, is both the, um, is both he and his servants are submissive to the same Lord. In other words, that we, we find ourselves recognizing that the God of the universe is both the master and the servant's Lord. I, I like this quote by Alexander McLaren. He says, employers, if you truly realize that you must answer to God for the way you conduct yourself with your employees, you will care about what happens to them. You will be concerned that they are paid properly. You'll be concerned about their illnesses, their spouses, their children, their education. Along with this, you may have more problems. In fact, this kind of caring attitude assures that you will, but you will also have the fullness of Christ. So the mandate is to be just and fair, to treat coworkers as brothers and not as servants. And, and as, we, as we look at these three points this morning, I just want to remind you, church, that the Apostle Paul is saying something that applies to each one of us where we're at in our lives. And that is that the God of the universe is aware of the quality that we pour into the things that we do in our day in and day out lives. Do you remember the quote at the beginning from, from Walt Disney? That he said that, that people can feel excellence. Church, I want to remind you that in our lives, the God of the universe can feel excellence. He made his creation with excellence. He knit you together with excellence. He put you in the world to be salt and light for a dark world with excellence. And if we live up to that standard, I believe what we can do is we can ultimately bring glory and honor to our Lord. Will you join me as we pray that we do that in this church? Lord, we love you. And I thank you for Hope Church. And I, I pray for us that as we strive to be people that represent your kingdom well, Lord, that as we strive to be people who do things with excellence, I ask that you would be honored in this place. I ask that you would be glorified as we strive to represent you in this community of Brunswick and beyond. And I ask, Lord, in our hearts that we would be people who evaluate what it means for us to do everything as unto you, Lord, because we believe in our hearts that you're worth it. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.